This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, the creator of FinTech Takes, and this is another episode of Not Fintech Investment Advice, but it's a very special episode of Not Fintech Investment Advice. Normally, we are joined by the wise and mysterious Simon Taylor, but as listeners may know, Simon is out on paternity leave, having welcomed his uh, newest girl to the family. He's not getting any sleep. He's probably still crazily thinking about fintech. We're going to give Simon a little bit of a break, and we are just delighted to be joined by someone I've actually wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, someone whose professional career has intersected my own in interesting ways that people who haven't been in fintech for a long time might not fully appreciate, but a very smart fintech thinker and someone who I rely on frequently to bounce ideas off of, Jared Franklin. Jared, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Try to do half as well as Simon normally does in these things. See how it goes. Well, I'll tell you... Yeah, the doing well is Simon thing. I gave up on that a long time ago. Like every time I read his newsletter or listen to him speak, I get really mad. And he's a little taller than me and he's got like a British accent. So it's a fool's errand to try to compete with Simon, but we'll do our best to bring the same level of enthusiasm he has. Well, before we jump into our game, Jared, for those who are not familiar with your background, can you just give us two minutes on your history in fintech? Yeah, I will not bore everyone for two minutes. We'll do at least probably half of that. <laughs> so I live in Boca Raton, Florida, about an hour north of Miami. For that, lived in Maryland most of my life, including most of the companies that I work for. Work in product management, mostly at fintech companies, two years sit in ad tech for 13 years. And then the last two years, I switched over and was doing early stage investing, mostly focused on fintech, just to completely try something else. At this point, I'm a free agent, probably go back to the operating side, just looking to meet and chat with as many folks as possible. Within the companies I've worked at, mostly around consumer lending and buy now, pay later. So started my career at a company called Bill Me Later. PayPal had bought them in 2008, worked there for a few years. Went back to PayPal after going to an ad tech company. Started a company called BlissPay with a few folks from PayPal and Bill Me Later. We did that for four years before selling to Alliance Data. Then spent some time at BlockFi before finding myself in venture. Well, that is quite an adventure in all the different fun areas of fintech. Buy now, pay later before buy now, pay later was cool or even a term. And by the way, for those who don't know, like Bill Me Later is truly one of the like OG, completely unknown fintech companies out there. So props to all the folks out there in fintech who are still coming from the Bill Me Later tree. Little, little kind of sojourn into crypto. And then obviously, investing. So you are by far the most qualified person for not fintech investment <laughs> advice. I don't think we'll go so far as to say this is investment advice, but you can at least take Jared's companies that he's going to provide a little bit more seriously than mine. Jared, you know the rules of this particular game, and I think you have a couple of fintech companies that you brought to the table. So do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. And to be super clear, I did not think of these in terms of would I invest, should other people invest, or would they even make good businesses? I thought them in terms of Interesting ones that most people haven't heard about. Excellent. Maybe there's a great business idea there. Maybe there's not. Just to make that clear. <laughs> so I'll start with a little preamble on that. I like to generally think in themes. So there'll be a theme today across kind of three companies we talk about. Wow. Two will be on one end of the spectrum, and the final one will be on the other end of that spectrum. 
So the first company I want to highlight is a company called Wellahead. Have you guys talked about them before? No, I don't think so. Okay, good. I listened to most of the episodes, but I didn't go back and, and check them all. So I've spoken to the founder, Jason, a few times in the past year. He's wonderful. They're very early, still less than five team members, probably. And this idea came to him after his grandmother passed away. He became obsessed with the problem of how we are unprepared for the silver tsunami, which is mm, yep. um, it's something I personally can relate to. And I've had to deal with at an earlier age than would have wished. So what yep. do they do? They're helping address the care affordability issue as one ages, mostly by making it easier to leverage the biggest asset that most people have, which is their home equity. So cash poor, house rich, aging, and need for care either in your home or at a facility, which this cohort is sitting on $11 trillion in equity last time I looked. I yep. wrote a blog post about this a few months back. And ultimately, they do this by creating a marketplace that is distributed through channel partners. Those channel partners are care providers that sell their services. So, hey, you need care. Either you've come to a facility or we're coming to your house. Oh, but you don't know how to pay for it. Here's a marketplace that has a bunch of options for you. What's interesting about this, obviously, at, at first, it's just that it's a big problem and there's a lot of home equity, but it's super hard to tap. And for care is probably the best thing and most realistic thing people are going to need to tap it for unless government really steps in to expand social services. Exactly. It brings to light some issues I've never thought of before in that forward mortgages or regular mortgages, pretty transparent these days. There's pretty accessible. You can go and see what rates are, but reverse mortgages and leasebacks and these other types, mm. there's really no marketplace. There's no open real-time data that you can see this. So I think that's what they're trying to create with a few of their partners. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think there's some interesting expansion ideas. They could go to adult daycare, assisted living, through financial advisors, and even direct to consumer eventually. But biggest challenge, chicken egg problem, like all marketplaces. Yeah. I think the demand will be there. Can they get the supply going? So that's well ahead. Interesting. Interesting. I like it. Well, so first of all, I will say this is definitely a problem area that I've been focused on and thinking about for a long time. So I love seeing fintech folks who are working on this. I think kind of to your point, until you've gone through this yourself personally, it's pretty hard to understand just how bad a problem this is and how hard it is to solve. And and not just like in terms of dollars and cents or um, you know the mechanics of it, but also like emotionally, right? I mean, this is like one of those things that completely sort of knocks the people who have to deal with it sideways. And that has all kinds of sort of knock-on effects to their productivity, their ability to manage their finances. Like it's a huge strain. And so, yeah, fintech solutions that are focused on this, I think, make all the sense in the world. And in particular, obviously, care is, I think, probably the single biggest like expense category. And so finding ways to tap into that without getting into new debt rather than instead tapping into home equity makes a lot of sense. I think the thing that you touched on that is most interesting to me, you mentioned like reverse mortgages and other sort of similar types of products that essentially allow you to get equity back out of a house. The thing that resonates there is, you're right, it's really not a transparent or liquid market at all. And what I've noticed, having kind of poked at this problem a little bit, is that particularly when it comes to like asset-based lending, the amount of like bad stuff that happens when there's no transparency is like dramatically higher than when there is, right? And and I, maybe I'll write a piece about this in my newsletter at some point, but like there's something about asset lending 
that when it is kind of not transparent and sort of opaque and there's not really a lot of providers in the space, the providers that are in the space tend to slip into some pretty bad behavior in terms of like rather predatory terms. And you hear stories about like people getting reverse mortgages with really bad terms that then the family didn't know anything about and it's not transparent. There's no governance around it. And because it's not a particularly liquid market, it's also not like a big enough market that regulators necessarily are getting involved. And so I I love fintech getting involved in these spaces where there is a legitimate business opportunity for lenders. It's enormously helpful for customers. And really what's missing is that sort of technology-driven and market-driven transparency that will create better, fair outcomes for borrowers. Because that's the other thing with the silver tsunami and with this segment of the market that I really am concerned about is they're very vulnerable to fraud and to sort of predatory financial products. And so doing this in a way that's like sort of default transparent, default towards like building trust and making this sort of relationship based. I love the idea of it going through other companies that already have relationships with these consumers. Like to me, those are some of the really important things to solve for. I would In some ways, I would be more nervous, I think, if they were starting with direct-to-consumer because you might worry they would sort of slip off the path and maybe get a little bit more into like, well, maybe we'll just do it this way. I I like the idea of, as you said, building that network effect, but tackling that part first in a way that will drive more trust. Yeah, right on. It's, um, yeah, they're not taking any financial risks themselves and that they're not lending. So, but they're, you know, there's a couple of different ways they could probably make money short-term versus long-term. And you always, with any marketplace, you have to make sure that the financings aren't, the economics aren't driving who you're presenting and showing. You will get into an advertising area and whatnot. Right, but right. I think by having uh, multiple different parties involved instead of just going direct to consumer, it gives you a lot more leeway. And mm-hmm. plus, I know I, I've spoken with them a couple of times, super mission-driven. And yep, yep. so I'm hopeful that you know the right people are focusing on this problem. Hopefully yes. something good comes of it and competition and better products for those. Yeah, no, I'd love to see it. And I think the only other thought I would have on it is, and it kind of relates to like the environment that we're in, right? I mean, mortgage is one of those things that's really hard in home equity and all the different products that sort of hang on this asset because it is very interest rate sensitive. And what I've observed is that a lot of these businesses they sort of are created during the boom times. And then when you know the interest rate environment and macro environment changes, suddenly it's shuttered and it's like a ghost town. And I there's a certain amount of that cyclicality that's just sort of built into the, the housing market. But I do like the idea of building more marketplaces and networks so that as the macro environment sort of waxes and wanes, there's a place for lenders and for customers to go sort of regardless of that environment, right? And so if it's, you know, a low interest rate environment where, you know, you need to get a loan and the goal is, yeah, we're going to buy something smaller and downsize and sell our existing house, like maybe that's the solution in a low interest rate environment and a high interest rate environment. Maybe it's about taking out one of these reverse mortgages, but doing it in a kind of safer, more transparent way. But I like the idea of hanging more infrastructure off of the real estate market so that regardless of the macro environment, there's an affordable, responsible solution for customers that's available. Yeah. Although you may not have gotten the memo that higher rates are not lasting. They're about to drop. Bitcoin's ripping, gold's ripping, stocks are ripping. It's to the moon again with everything for the foreseeable future. So low interest rates for everyone. I know. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. I uh, Honestly, I mean, 
I'll probably be like bouncing my grandkids on my knee, telling them about 2021. So I'm trying <laughs> to like hold that vision in my brain and just not let it go. But very exciting to hear that the economy is back on track. <laughs> Can I give you my first company? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. This is one you may or may not have heard about. They've been sort of like in stealth, which I find to be just the most hilarious term because like they've been working with customers and are pretty far along. But it's a company called Increase, which is a banking as a service platform, uh, I believe founded by some folks coming from Stripe. And they have since removed the cloak of invisibility and are now in the market publicly uh, selling their services. They are very similar to a lot of the other banking as a service platforms out there. So your treasury primes and units and companies like that. The distinction, though, I think, is that they are very focused on sort of providing the most modern technology platform for fintech companies and other brands that are looking to build financial products. And so whereas some of those other platforms, like using maybe uh, Treasury Prime as an example, is a little bit more focused on like the matchmaking with the partner bank and sort of sorting out some of the relationships and the contracting and compliance. And obviously, the technology and the system of record and ledger is a part of it, but it's not sort of the main focus. In the case of Increase, like the technology is the main focus. And they have a very sort of close to the bare metal sort of approach. So in some ways, they're almost more like a lithic yeah, in a sense, and that like they're trying to integrate directly with Visa as an issuer processor. They're trying to get really close to the metal on all of the different payments rails and have a very sort of developer-oriented solution, which makes sense for folks coming from Stripe. As a Bass middleware platform, though, they are obviously working with bank partners on the back end. So from what I can tell, the two bank partners at the moment are First Internet Bank and Blue Ridge Bank. Blue Ridge, of course, is currently working their way out from under a consent order with the OCC, which I believe restricts them from taking on any new fintech customers. And so Blue Ridge, I would imagine, is probably more of a established partner for maybe companies that are already using Blue Ridge and Increase. And they do have some pretty impressive customers that they have listed on their website, Ramp, Modern Treasury, Pipe. So they're already kind of working with that upper echelon of fintech companies. And then I would imagine new companies that are coming on board are probably being directed, at least for the moment, to first internet. I don't know. I mean, this is interesting. I, I wouldn't have guessed that we would have seen a whole bunch more Bass platforms crop up these days, just given that it is kind of tough times in Bass. And I think in particular, for these Bass middleware platforms, the the unit economic squeeze is real because you're sort of sitting in between the fintech company that's trying to optimize their unit economics because that's how they make money. And then the bank on the back end that's only getting into banking as a service because they want to optimize those unit economics and use it as a way to grow. So I don't know that I I love it, but you know they are seemingly taking a what I call a bank as regulator approach to compliance. So they're not trying to do any program management sitting in between the bank and the fintech company. I think they're trying to make that something that the two work together on, which is wise. And I think that you know the the big question to me is just how they fit into the the new world of Bass competitors. Because when I think about like modern technology, very focused on developers, names that occur to me, obviously Unit is one, which I mentioned, but also banks that are trying to sort of do this. And so you have Lead Bank with Jackie Rhesus, you have Column with William Hockney, you have banks that have charters, but are also building this sort of modern developer-first tech stack. And I would think those would be 
fairly competitive with what you know these guys could offer. But I don't know, Jared, what do you think? You you spend at least a little time sort of observing the banking as a service market, right? I'm in fintech, of course. We, we all have. Yeah, um, it's your life. It's your life. You, you go to bed thinking about banking as a service. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So my understanding of increase is a little less middleware and much more closer to the metal. Yep. For what I know, I, I believe the founder, who was really like the third co-founder from what I understand, of Stripe, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. there from Justice the Carlson Brothers, and I had never heard anything but spectacular things about him sure, and the true. team that he's been building. But I'm pretty sure he personally bought a bank. I think it's Washington Bank. Washington Interesting. Business Bank, it might be okay. called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like with his own money or a group of money, uh, something along those lines. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the developer-friendly approach to offering services to others is related to that bank. So I don't mm. know about Blue Ridge and, and others and what services they're offering. I, I believe there was a component of um, buy the bank, work with regulators to figure out how to, which services we'll be able to offer yeah. them to others. And in the meantime, lots of that takes a really long time, build out those developer tools on top of others, get some Interesting. customers, and maybe Interesting. eventually do a little switcheroos. But I'm really not close to them. I, I looked at them quite a while back. But that's the big differentiation from most of the others is that I don't believe they intend to be true middleware. That makes sense. That makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that clarification, because with that, I would definitely see it as being much more competitive. It's interesting. I guess I hadn't really thought of, although I suppose there's really no reason why you couldn't. Like if you're a bank and I, you know, this could be lead bank, this could be column, whomever, it could be cross river for that matter. Like, I wonder if there is an element of, why not have like a network of partner banks to go along with your bank, right? Because the other thing I think that I was I was thinking about this in relation to the Apple card, which is not dead and will uh, emerge with a new uh, bank issuing partner. But I was thinking about who that partner is going to be and how much control Apple is going to try to exercise over that product. And, you know, one of the challenges in working with these smaller community banks where you could theoretically exercise a bit more of that control as opposed to a JP Morgan Chase or an American Express is a lot of them, their balance sheets just aren't optimized to taking on products that bring a certain amount of volume in a certain area. And so like in the case of Increase, uh, just poking around their website, like they don't seem to do any lending at all right now, which is you know totally fine and understandable. I probably wouldn't start with lending if I was getting into banking as a service. But I do wonder if, as you say, as they sort of ramp up the bank that they own, I wonder if it ends up like just sort of becoming that's the whole thing and we do everything through the bank or if they do end up with more of a sort of a load balancing or like a network of banks that they can kind of move different clients between with the technology sort of sitting seamlessly over the top. Does that concept make any sense to you? Yeah, I think it's probably service dependent and mm-hmm. and customer dependent, right? If you're trying yeah, to serve yeah. businesses versus consumers, there might be different banks that are willing to do that mm-hmm. or allowed to do that, similar with lending or not, right? The, the bank he has maybe can't serve certain customers in certain states or what, right. regulates it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that network actually would make a lot of sense. The other question that I have with these models are really governance related or even investor related, right? When mm-hmm. you invest, what exactly are you investing in? A bank is a very specific thing. It has its own board, <laughs> it has its own employees. You have this yeah. tech company. What exactly are investors investing in and what exactly they have rights to and who has governance over these two different entities that are kind of one entity, but they're really not. And mm. There's a lot of interesting governance issues that uh, these banks, bass uh, 
that didn't back into it like SVB. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good one. I mean, and I think it's really interesting, right? Because not to go too far, not to cross the streams on Bank Nerd Corner and not fintech investment advice, but I do think that is a really interesting point. I mean, my co-host on uh, Bank Nerd Corner would be screaming right now about like the metrics that are used to evaluate a bank versus the metrics that are used to evaluate a venture-backed business and just how do you sort of manage against those two different sets of expectations. And yeah, I, I would be very curious about that. I would also be curious, and this applies to to lead and column and others too, but in the same way that SVB ended up with a lot of concentration risk that kind of sunk the ship, I would be curious how regulators view banks that are 100% in on banking as a service from a concentration risk perspective. You know, If you look at like, the balance sheets of really established banks that have been in banking as a service for a long time, like the Bank Corp, as an example, they've built a pretty Rube Goldberg-y type balance sheet that's really designed to take the best of what they can get out of banking as a service, but then turn all of the sort of output of that into really profitable short-term loans that don't expose their balance sheet to any risk, but optimize the profitability of having these sort of short-term volatile assets. And so I think that how you build the balance sheet around a really hyper-focused business that's a bank, but also not a bank. I mean, that's that's probably another hour's worth of conversation we could get into. We can stop there, though. Thank you for um, layering on your understanding for increase. That gives me a lot more to think about. You go and give me your second company now. All right, cool. My second company is one that I know very little about. I saw the founder post an announcement about it last nice. week. You probably saw as well, Ribbon, TrustRibbon.com. Do you remember mm. seeing that? I don't. I think I missed that one, actually. Okay. Idea inspired by the founder's personal experience. He lost his father to pancreatic cancer. And he had a lot of challenges. Everyone will be very familiar with this. He's been in his position with mm-hmm. managing his estate after the loved one passed. And so what they intend to do looks super early. Very little info available. Haven't been able to even chat with him about it. But they mm-hmm. want to create an embedded digital estate management solution for financial institutions to offer to their clients. Mm. So that's a mouthful, but we had to come up with at least one embedded opportunity here to highlight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it looks like Charles Schwab has, has actually invested in this and built it himself. So you could go in, upload a death certificate, upload your personal information. They could transfer assets directly mm-hmm. to you, keep the assets at Schwab, actually get another customer for another generation. But Schwab has a, has a lot of money to build that. These guys believe that there's an embedded opportunity to sell this service, essentially, to other FIs so they could easily offer this and have much easier management on the back end for all their outs folks. This is very, very interesting. Yeah. So again, I mean, thematically, you're right on track. And I know I, I really I mean, I think funny. I mean, you and I think you see this a lot and you probably did a lot when you were investing like. There are certain categories that are just so like, really, do we need another one? Like, I'm sure you have a good answer to why you and not the 10,000 other ones just like you, but like, eh. but this is an area where every part of this value chain, there's like no one who does it, or there's like a couple big providers that have built this capability themselves, but there's no embedded option, or, you know, there's one, but it's tuned for a very specific segment of the market and not this other one. So, like, this whole market is like ripe for way more building. This one in particular is interesting. I mean, I've always looked at this space more on the front end, which is to say like, 
establishing your estate. And this is like the trust and wills and those of the world. But the dealing with the estate after death is, is I mean, yeah, as you say, very sort of underbuilt area. I mean, having having watched my parents go through that and having sort of helped them with that when their parents passed, I mean, it's a really, really difficult process. I guess the other thing I'd be curious about here is like, to what degree is this being enabled for people who are inheriting versus people who are sort of being like the executor or the person in charge of sort of managing the estate after the person passes away? Because that's I guess it's two different workflows would maybe be the way to think about it. And I think probably software needs to get built for both. Do you have a sense of kind of which one's being built for? I don't. I know nothing about the product or the strategy. I, I wrote the founder of LinkedIn message. I haven't heard back, unfortunately, trying to get some more <laughs> Damn uh, product vision. I, I, can't, I can't believe him. What was he thinking? I Not know. We're recording a podcast strangers. Here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from what I could tell on their website and what mm. it sounds like is, you know, this is embedded in specific FIs, so they don't have to build themselves just like Charles Schwab. Mm-hmm. To me, that that maybe is a good step one. But long term, you want to have that direct relationship, have people be able to be more proactive, and have more people that are as part of my estate be able to participate. And then you could actually connect with things across many FIs. That right. seems like the more natural way of doing this. When I went through this with my wife's parents, both unfortunately passed away within six mm-hmm. months of each other, mm-hmm. very unexpectedly, and it was complete chaos. Totally. Credit cards, dogs, house, cars. Yeah. Bank accounts. Yeah. You know, it's just absolute chaos. And mm-hmm. you literally just go through one by one and trying to call places or log into their accounts and do mm-hmm. password resets. And mm-hmm. It's a mess. And so I do think this probably makes sense as a step one to avoid mm-hmm. that just calling and these ops mm-hmm. people. They probably have four out of a thousand ops people that are trained to be able to hand- handle that call potentially. Right. So maybe, maybe this helps with that. But yeah, to me, the right approach would be to consumers proactively before stuff happens. And, um, yeah, cross up across so many FIs, but they should get that information, I would think. So we'll see. I think this one comes down to strategy and if there's more to it than, than I can see. Yeah, no, I mean, and, you know, it's it's always hard to speculate on ones that are very early, but I do think that's a really good point. And, you know, it's the thing that's hard about this. And I I'm very bullish on like B2C fintech that fits into this category, which is a lot of stuff. And this is a perfect example. The actual problem is like the relationship problems, right? And so like it, it, it ends up getting wrapped around the axle with money and that's what ends up making it sort of a hair on fire problem that you have to solve. But like the actual workflows, to use an example, you know, when my grandparents passed, one of the things that was really hard was just managing the sort of, from an executor perspective, like the dispensation of different property and like making that feel fair and making that feel like an expression of the person's wishes. And, yeah. you know, it's a software problem, right? I mean, there's a way to make that not perfect because obviously anything with human beings is never going to be perfect, but there's a way to make that smoother and more automated and more transparent using software. And this is one of those areas. And, you know, I'm so, again, I'm so glad that fintech founders are building for this. And I, I, I say that sort of with a little bit of somberness because a lot of times the reason they're doing it is because they've gone through this themselves, which is horrible, obviously. But I am glad this is being built because this is one of those areas, I was thinking about this, even, I mean, my wife and I have three young kids at home. So we started doing a little bit of the estate planning kind of thing. And it's it's really tough because like the human mind is just not wired to think about the worst case scenario, right? And I think in particularly in fintech, we have this real bias towards like optimism. It's all going to work out. We are all going to go to the moon. Like it's going to be great. 
And we, we don't tend to think about like, okay, how do we build workflows and automation and planning and all of these things for the worst case and for contingencies that we don't want to think about, but that are, at least in this particular case, inevitable? And like, how do we make sure that that's handled in a way that we would want and that minimizes the amount of pain for everyone involved? And, you know, it's one of those things that on a human level, if you're depending on people to do it, it seems very unlikely that people are going to do it and they're just going to end up kind of in the situation that you and your wife are in just like every night going down the list and trying to check off a couple more things and just like hating the whole experience one step at a time versus something that is still going to be painful and difficult, but at least you can remove a lot of like the drudgery from it. I don't know. There's an element of this is difficult emotionally with this is just really unpleasant drudgery work. And like, if you can solve at least one of those, then at least maybe the other one is not as bad or it's something that you can deal with more head on. I don't know. It's a challenging one to build for, but I'm glad people are focused on it. Definitely. The, the business side of it is also tough. Like, see the product, see the problem, see the need, but how you build into a really huge business is a much bigger question mark. You ultimately need to get to, you really need to, need to figure out that really great wedge, which might not be where they're starting, right? Tackling yeah, that right. problem in the future that people aren't envisioning. Definitely need to figure out recurring revenue over time. So eventually maybe get into wealth management yeah. or those ongoing fees if you know you offer embedded bank accounts and the money gets deposited there and you keep it there, stuff like that. But yeah, so that, that wraps up that side of the theme for me for the day. What's your uh, second company? That was a very good one. Um, yeah, so my second company, not on your theme, but it is sort of in the world of sort of software-driven workflows. Mine is actually one I wrote about in my newsletter today called Conduit, C-O-N-D-U-I-I-T. And you got to spell things differently if you want to stand out in fintech. And they are basically providing sort of financial management platform for the film and television industry. So... The concept is basically that if you are a film or television studio, so Amazon, you know, Paramount, HBO, what have you, Netflix, you're going to have a production team that is sort of on the ground, in the field, making the television show or making the movie. And then somewhat loosely connected to that group of people, you're going to have a back office finance team that's going to be managing the project sort of more holistically as just one of the many projects that they're overseeing. And much like, you know, corporate expense management or any sort of area of like corporate finance or B2B payments, there's a lot of sort of back and forth between those groups. There's, you know, expense reports and purchase orders, there's invoices, there's reconciliation, there's auditing, there's all of these sort of mechanical processes that are designed to enable the production team to do what they're doing well, while also enabling the finance team and maybe other like financial backers that are backing the project that the finance team interfaces with to keep track of what's going on, make sure that they stay on budget, make sure that they stay on timeline, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you and I would have no way of knowing this because I don't think you've ever worked in film or television, right? Is that one of your many accomplishments so far? I don't think I could know anything less about this than, than I do right now. <laughs> well, that is that is a great answer because I feel the same way. And so it's one of those areas where I, I don't know how it works. Maybe it's just like tiny mice sitting in an office, like typing on keyboards, like could be for all I know. According to the founders of Conduit, who both come from this world and have worked exclusively in this world, and won't be too surprising to hear this because we hear this in other industries, it's very driven by spreadsheets. It's very paper-based. It's not particularly well organized and it requires a lot of like 
human effort and hours thrown at it in order to sort all of this out. So enter software. And there was a great piece that was written by Matt Brown, who's an investor in fintech. And he was writing about B2B payments aren't a payments thing, they're a workflow thing. And I was thinking about that as I was reading about this company, because I think this is a really good example of if you understand the workflows well enough and you can like just out of what's in your head, having lived in this world for a long time, sort of map out on paper exactly how all the different processes work, where the money and the payments fit into that, then it's just a question of, okay, can we build a platform that can automate that or make that smoother? And I don't know, this is one of those companies that I feel like couldn't have existed 20 years ago because marrying that level of expertise with the infrastructure and the tooling available to build a fintech platform to enable this, like that just didn't exist. It wasn't possible. But today, two people who've never been in fintech before, but who come out of the entertainment industry can build a platform that, you know, according to uh, the press release I saw, they just raised a million dollars in pre-seed funding. They've already managed something like 30 projects working with Netflix and HBO and a couple other studios. So they have sort of all of the incumbent advantages of that, you know, people from an industry building an embedded finance solution for that industry. They know people in the industry. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of other solutions that are doing exactly this. And uh, I don't know, it's to me, it's a good example of, you know, we talk about embedded finance all the time, but we spend so much time talking about the same like five industries. It's all, you know, trucking and shipping and healthcare and like, I feel, you know, construction. Like, I feel like we talk about the same industries over and over again, but Film and television, you know, is just yet another one of these areas where there's nothing there. And if you can build something, I mean, I would think the market would be pretty big. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely have not seen seen these guys. And great call out to Matt. I think Matt Brown's fantastic. He's he does a one good of my job. Favorite fintech yeah. investor writers and always enjoyed conversations with him. Uh, and he knows this well because his previous time before he got into investing was basically he built a product kind of like this, but for freelancers. From, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah can't remember the name. So it's funny, I, I saw something else in the past week that similar type of value prop and capabilities, but specifically mm-hmm. for helping healthcare providers go out and become, start their own private practices. So oh, invoicing, yeah. spend management, approvals, embedded banking, and also layered in like start your business. So starting an LLC or whatever mm-hmm. else for whatever type of business you're going to do it and those types of things. So I think we're mm-hmm. almost reaching peak bundling of embedded business banking here with yeah. credit cards and, and whatever else there. And you know, I, I think the devil probably is in those details of those workflows because these capabilities are all pretty similar that every business has. You know, so I think it's probably only a matter of time before we see a white label version for any yeah. industry and then yeah. some kind of, you know, WYSIWYG on top of that low code type of feature set. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I from a business perspective, like most things to go back to for most of these products you need significant amount of volume. So I see HBO and Netflix here. If they don't land some of these whales, you know, will they really be able to big, build a big business? It's always a big question. Right. So, yeah. yeah. If they get HBO and Netflix, I'm sure this thing becomes a really awesome business. <laughs> no, well, and that's a good that's a good call out too, right? Because that's I think one of the things about vertical sort of B2B fintech that I I find kind of fascinating is not all verticals are built the same. Right. And like I think I do think there is a level of granularity to these workflows that I think can make a difference because, and this is like, I mean, you know, this having worked in financial services for years, like even like when you're trying to sell stuff to banks, you know, like 
you go sell this to a bank and then you go into a credit union and you try to sell the same thing and they have the exact same need. But whoops, I slipped up and I said customer rather than member and the credit union just kicked me out and now they hate me. And it's like, it's the same problem. Like we did this at Zoot all the time. Like it's the same software, but if you don't speak the language and kind of nail the details and the user interface, they get very particular about that. And I, I think that, you know, that is one of those it doesn't feel like it should matter that much. It feels like you should just be able to genericize all the workflows and it works for every industry. But industries are very particular about how they're serviced and what kind of providers they want to work with. And so I do think potentially there's an edge. And if I was giving them advice, which for sure they don't need, I would be like, lean into your knowledge of all the peculiarities of the entertainment industry as much as humanly possible so that, you know, when, I don't know, Ramp comes knocking on these companies' doors, Ramp is going to look like a total outsider relative to your solution. So I do think there is uh, a benefit that you can get there. But the other point you bring up is a good one. Every industry is also really subject to the sort of makeup of that industry in terms of the players. So entertainment is one of those ones where there's not a lot of like small businesses in the world of like film and television. Like it's HBO, it's Netflix, it's Amazon, it's Paramount. It's, you know, two or three others. Like it's not a huge list. And so you have to have the ability to land whales, to retain them. I wouldn't think this would be the type of thing that they would build their own software for. I, maybe I'm completely off base, but I, I think you're probably a little safe in that respect. But yeah, I mean, when you compare it to healthcare, where there's always, you know, practitioners who are splitting off and starting their own practice, like that's a very different, more fractured market. So I think you you definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, this needs to be something that lands with the whales pretty quickly or it's not going to turn into a real business. Right on. Awesome. Okay. So now, as you know, listening to the podcast, Simon and I always end by trying to manifest some fintech that we want to see. And, you know, these can be ideas that we've been noodling on for years and are just waiting for someone to build. These can be just like flights of fancy that you thought up five minutes ago. These can be things that may already exist that we don't know about. So someone please DM us if you're already building this and we just don't happen to know you. Jared and I cover a lot of the fintech space. And so we'd be a little surprised if we'd never heard of you, but it does happen a lot. Or maybe this is something that's net new that someone needs to get out there and build. So Jared, do you have something you'd like to manifest in the fintech space? Certainly do. All right. So I tend to be attracted to pretty complex businesses, networks, marketplaces, <laughs> B2B to C to E to B, etc. You like to make it hard on yourself. Yeah, totally. Those are the types of companies I want to go work for. Usually have, <laughs> yeah, glutton for punishment. Yeah. So I'm coming up with a infinitely complex product right now that okay. would probably be a very poor business. I love it. This is is what manifesting is for. No, no, I love this. Like manifest this. We can make this happen. Yeah. So there's something like it should exist. Exactly. Probably better as a government back program. But at least this conversation between us should spur some innovation discussion out there. Awesome. Um, All right. So inspired by Charlie Munger's passing last Mm. week at 99 years old. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace. I think he was credited with the words, your first 100K is a bitch. And it's true that took me six years and yep. I was obsessed with getting there. Six years of working full time and I was yep. obsessed with getting there, 100K net worth. Probably would have taken me double otherwise. So we know how important it is to get to your first 100K and how hard it is. There's another certainty in life, which is compounding and long-term investing works. Mm-hmm. I think it was Buffett who credited Einstein, but maybe Einstein said this, but I have no idea that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Right. So I'd love to see a program, a product or system that mm-hmm. helps out here. 
And so I believe Brad Gerstner at Altimeter is leading the charge on a program. I think it's called Invest America or America Invest. I haven't actually looked at it. So if nothing else, maybe this will just get his program more eyeballs. But I come yeah. up with one that's way more complex than what I believe his is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So here's the idea. A no-loss lottery with a social benefit. Okay. I have no idea about lottery and investment fund regulations and legal considerations. So we'll caveat that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how lotteries generally work. You buy a ticket, pretty much everyone loses the amount that they spent instantaneously. You don't have the option to get back the amount that you put in to buy it, and it goes to some state or system or a few lucky winners. So step one towards improving the value prop for the players is to make it so they could always get their money back in the form of a no-loss lottery. So I can play, but I can get my money back. I believe some other countries... This is actually pretty popular in some other countries. There's mm-hmm. actually a DeFi protocol called Pool Together that popularized this a few years ago that I've always thought was really interesting. Secondly, we could add a social benefit. So that would be, in this case, seeding young kids with investment accounts. So yeah. contribute money into a pot, accrue investment returns. Part of the returns go to funding kids' accounts. Part of the returns go to a pool for winnings. And the principal can always be returned to participants at any time. And so I did some rough math. I tried to use ChatGPT, but I got nothing but <laughs> network errors. So I used Claude, which I find myself using way more than ChatGPT these days. I don't know if uh, you have a preference. Free ad. That's a free ad. No, I uh, <laughs> I need to play with Claude more. I need to get into that one a little more. Keep going. Yeah, I have good experience with, with Claude. My wife can't imagine life without Claude or Bard and actually doesn't use ChatGPT anymore. So. Really? Anyway, wow, of- wow, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so my model, I did not play with this for too long. But my model assumes that households earning $100,000 per year participate. Uh-huh. 80% of them contribute $1 a day. 10% contribute $2 a day. And 10% contribute $5 a day. Okay. It also assumes a 25% government match on the returns that go to seeding the kids' accounts and the an annual 8% return. Okay. So the results with those assumptions would be that each of the almost 4 million children that are born each year would end up with an account worth about 60 grand by the time they're 18 years old. If they left it untouched, compound interest really starts to kick in. Yep. Be worth almost 200 grand by age 30. They left it till 50, be worth over a million. And if you left it until 65, it'd be over 5 million bucks. So I'm pretty sure this is not a viable business idea, but the challenge to listeners out there would be to either go check out Altimeter Brad's Invest America program, uh-huh. which I, I, uh-huh. I know is the same end goal. I don't know where the funding comes from for it. Or to go dream up you know, this idea in a more viable way. And just ultimately to help kids get that first 100K and benefit from compounding. Yeah, no, I, I adore this idea. I have seen versions of this. Um, so this is blending sort of two different concepts, right? So the one is the like seed accounts for kids, right? And so the concept is, and I've seen this as like a benefit. I think actually the the city of San Francisco did a pilot with all the the kids born in San Francisco, or maybe it was like all those going into kindergarten in public schools in San Francisco, but it was basically like, and it was a pretty small amount. It was like 500 or $1,000 or something per kid funded by the state, by the city. And the math is like startling, right? When, uh, to your point about compound interest. And it, it also harkens back to another thing. I, I can't remember who to credit for this, but someone rightly observed a while ago that the only sort of uh, successful 
personal financial management experiment in American history is the 401k and uh, having the sort of employer match on the 401k and just being opted into it. Like that's really the only sort of thing that we've demonstrated on a large scale across a lot of consumers sort of altering the wealth outcomes for a large segment of the population. And it's built on roughly the same premise, which is you just need to do it and have it sit in the background and not pay attention to it and let compounding interest work its magic. So I love that. To the point about the first 100K and sort of how you seed this fund, yeah, I mean, I I don't know that I'm smart enough to work out the business mechanics of how you make that into a business, but I do like the idea of, and this is the second idea that sort of welded on here, the sort of prize-linked lottery or lottery-based savings. So you see this cropping up in the U.S., I think for a while it's been in Europe, but the idea is basically, hey, buy a ticket for our savings lottery. And if you win, great, you know, you get a thousand bucks or whatever the prize is. If you don't, the money that you spent on the ticket is just going into a savings account. And so it's kind of win-win from that perspective. And so mm-hmm. I do like sort of blending gamification, sort of no losses for consumers and the sort of social good of seeding these funds early on. And I, I'd i be very curious to see something like this sort of put in practice that's somewhat privately funded by individuals, because I mean, I'm thinking about myself personally, like I've never been one of those people who minds like paying my taxes, particularly on like a local level, yeah. you know, because like, it's like my kids go to school, other kids need to go to school, like I drive on roads, like it, it doesn't bug me too much. And I wonder if there is sort of a set of private systems we could create that sort of approximate that like local social good aspect where it's like, I'm not being hurt here. And what I'm doing is also contributing to a larger positive good for everyone. So that's an interesting idea. I like that one. Thanks. (laughs) What's yours? Okay. So, all right, folks listening, build that one first. Mine is much less thought out than, uh, than Jared's, but I'll do mine really quickly. So building off of what we were just talking about before with uh, Conduit and with sort of verticalized fintech in all these different areas, a thing I've been sort of thinking about is it's easier to start a fintech company today than it has ever been in the past, which is cool. But I do sort of have this lingering feeling that we would be much more successful as an ecosystem if we could get even better at recruiting people who know stuff that sits well outside of the fintech industry and making it really easy for them to start fintech companies. Because for every you know, for every group of founders like the ones who started Conduit, who got pulled into fintech, there's probably 10 more who should be starting fintech companies based on what's in their head and their ability to see a problem that none of us can see. But they're not because they've never heard the term fintech. They would have no idea where to get started, all of those things. So my pitch would be for some type of like combined banking as a service VC accelerator startup studio type thing. So like to me, what I think we need is we need some mechanism for recruiting sort of high quality potential founders who have a a mindset and a view into a problem space that's not at all related to financial services, but that has a financial services element to solving a problem because everything does because everything ties back to money and giving them an environment where you could make it really, really easy for them to launch a fintech company to solve that problem. So sort of a factory that can output better vertical 
fintech solutions for all of the different industries that fintech hasn't sort of fully infiltrated yet. And I, I think you'd have to obviously be thoughtful about the economics and the ownership stake and how that would work. I've always wondered like why folks that are involved in venture or company building in fintech haven't at least kicked the tires on banking as a service or partnering with banks because like that's a whole other element where it's like hey we're ready to start this fintech company now go off and find a bank partner and good luck because bass is kind of the wild west out there like why not bring all of that into one ecosystem and make it a lot easier to sort of pull these people into fintech who should be building solutions so that's my my manifesting yes manifest it you're nodding your head. You're nodding your head. But uh, is there some like thing you're not saying that I you want to say? Oh, no. I mean, it makes sense. As you mentioned, like there are accelerators and whatnot. I do think this is probably an area of investment that has had a lot of new experimentation over the years, not specific to FinTech, right? But right. Yeah. In yeah. general, different types of funding methods. And there's just a lot of challenges to, to get it right. Yeah. And so these dynamics are complex. And I think about different types of funding for different issues all the time. A friend of my mine an hour ago before this, we're, we were actually just talking about how, and we're not the only ones, but you know, what is that middle group between VC and SPA loans for businesses that don't tend to be worth a billion plus to go public, right? Totally. Their funding and it's just, these are challenging areas. Well, folks need to keep working on it because Jared and I demand that it be so. Jared, <laughs> this was so fun. Thank you so much for joining me for Not Fintech Investment Advice. We'll have to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully didn't bore people. Hopefully my accent doesn't disappoint compared to Simon's, even though it does. It people does, it. yeah. I mean, there's there's no avoiding it. But um, for our lame American accents, I think we did pretty well. And I uh, appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.